You ever watch something in a movie and think to yourself, that is way too dumb? Like, I actually remember seeing in a movie once a guy getting killed by a frisbee. Hey, Colleen. Got a great ass. Well, it turns out a lot of real life would make for really bad movie plots as well, because in MMA, there are just so many moments in time that just don't make any sense. And with this month being the 30th anniversary of the UFC, and there being plenty that you find through researching this sport like we have for six years, well, 30 just felt like the right number. So let's go and check it out. I'm Jason from MMA on Point, a massive thanks to our biggest supporters and our Hall of Famers, and these are 30 facts about MMA that sound fake but are somehow true. Number 30, the UFC basically exists because of Playboy. Yes, the magazine, that Playboy. While most were definitely just there for the pictures, some are out there apparently to read hey, whatever gets you off, count the UFC's co-founder Art Davey in that group because that's how he found out about the Gracies and more importantly, Horion. I discovered an article in the September 1989 issue of Playboy and it was B.A.D. Bad. The company he pitched it to, SCG, was looking for new pay-per-view attractions to promote and based on this one article, Art Davey was sold. So the two met up and here we are 30 years later. Number 29 my dog ate my gloves. Or at least that's what some of these last minute cancellations in the sport might sound like. The most famous incident is from March of 2000 at UFC 24 when Kevin Randleman was supposed to defend his title for the first time against Pedro Hizzo. The problem is that he busted his head on the concrete floor backstage while simply trying to warm up. Unbelievable. There are also a few instances of fighters getting sick and last minute cancellation similar to this, but the craziest one by far is when Matt Sarah was supposed to be debuting in Pride, but the fight would abruptly be called off when his opponent Joe Hill de Oliveira was making his entrance. The pyro team accidentally turned on their flamethrowers while he was right in front of them. Yeah, so the dude got severe third degree burns and needless to say this fight was immediately canceled as he needed urgent treatment and somebody definitely got fired. Matt Sarah also never ended up fighting in pride as a result. Number 28, the battle for New York. Turns out the best tools for battling the UFC might come in the form of whisks and spatulas. Now I understand you've got some cooking tips for us, Diane. Because as the UFC has just celebrated nearly eight years in New York, it was literally illegal all the way until 2016, and that's due to two major reasons. A man by the name of Sheldon Silver and the Las Vegas Culinary Union. Yes, a culinary union. Turns out they were upset at the Fertitas, who then still own the UFC as well, and some huge casinos in Vegas that were not unionized. So they took it upon themselves to get revenge and tried to ban the Fertitas MMA venture from gaining legalization anywhere they could, especially New York. Culinary union. I don't give a you guys think what you do, you don't matter to me any way, shape, or form. You guys are spending your time, energy, and your culinary workers' money to go out of your way to screw with a mixed martial arts organization that brings a ton of revenue into the state and to the people that, that, that uh, you represent. And I could give a flying rat's ass about you guys. You guys... Don't bother me one bit. Including getting into the pocket of a very important politician in Sheldon Silver, who basically blocked the UFC anytime a bill was presented in the state, despite bipartisan support. Turns out a lot of people were in his pockets and he got convicted for a boatload of fraud crimes. 
A horde of media swarmed the FBI's white Chevy Malibu with New York State Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver in the back seat, in custody. So literally within a year of him being removed, the UFC was in New York. Number seven, steroids are fine, I guess. The UFC has been involved with plenty of controversies lately as USADA, the anti-doping testing agency, will no longer be testing athletes for them in 2024. It has not ended well. Um, the, according to USADA, as of January 1st, 2024, USADA will no longer be involved with the UFC anti-doping program. The relationship between USADA and UFC became untenable given the statements made by UFC leaders and others questioning USADA's principled stance that McGregor not be allowed to fight without being in the testing pool for at least six months. Not a single person ever went to USADA and told them anything other than Conor McGregor would re-enter the program when he was healthy. There would be no exception to the rule. This is how you're going to end your relationship with us? Who else would want to do business with these guys after that? Not me. So it doesn't matter to me. We're moving on. One word, scumbag. I think they have some legitimate legal liability that they should be very concerned with. Well, before they were around, some definitely sus things went down. Josh Barnett, who's most known for losing his UFC heavyweight championship due to testing positive for a steroid called Boldenone, or his failed test against Fedor Emelianenko, essentially tanking the former UFC rival Affliction. Well, it turns out his first failed test was let off with just a warning. In 2002, he failed a drug test in Nevada ahead of his fight with Bobby Hoffman and yeah, there were no consequences. And this was under the full knowledge of the UFC. But that's not the only example. John Jones is far from innocent in this scenario because he's had that whole picogram scandal, controversy, whatever you want to call it, repeated fell test, which culminated in the moving of an entire event on a few days notice to accommodate this disaster. But he was also on the receiving end himself against Vitor Belfort. There was a report that came out by Josh Gross that he, you know, allegedly had high uh, levels of testosterone and... The UFC knew about it? That's that's what the report states. Um, yeah. Vitor Belfort was on steroids when I fought him. The UFC was very well um, aware. They uh, let the fight go on knowing that I was fighting a guy on steroids, which is a hazard to my life. To know that they put me in there with him, knowing that he was on there, it, it's really a slap in the face. It's insane what people have been able to get away with. Number six, Bruce Buffer versus Frank Trigg. Yep, turns out he doesn't just announce fights after all. Back in 2006, while in Vegas, Bruce Buffer, Mike Goldberg, and Frank Trigg were looking to get out for the night. They popped into the elevator and, oh hey, Dana just happened to need the elevator as well and joined them for their ride. So Trigg used this opportunity to plead for another fight in the promotion. Buffer, oblivious to the situation, interrupted the conversation because he thought Dana White's watch was really cool. Okay, this is weird enough already, but I guess I guess this was ruining Trigg's golden opportunity, so he literally attacked Bruce Buffer, to which Bruce responded and threw about 10 floors of the elevator coming down, they actually drew some blood before finally getting it all under control. But hey, they still went out and partied for the night, so what a bunch of bros. Number 25, GSP and Monsters Inc. So St. Pierre's had a few notable acting roles of the years, right? With probably none more well-known than the cameo against Captain America, but he's had a lot more to include with Sensei Seagal, but by far the worst one was when he was overdubbed in Never Surrender. Visitor hours are over. I'm here to see Diego. Visitor hours are over. Listen, I don't want any trouble, okay? 
I guess they just didn't like his French Canadian accent. What a terrible movie. There you go, always thinking about my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't all bad for GSP as he did get a role in, get this, Monsters Inc. spinoff Monsters University. And dude, I have no idea what I'm actually hearing here, but it kind of sounds like he's nailed this. Some Quebecers will no doubt be able to let me know, but I still can't believe this actually happens. Number 24, Shane McMahon. Well, this entry has definitely been outdone recent years as we've literally seen the WWE and UFC come together under TKO, which to be honest, sounds even more unreal that it actually happens. But what if I told you, when the UFC nearly went bankrupt before Zufa bought it, Shane McMahon's son of Vince McMahon was super close to buying the UFC. The contract does say McMahon. However, the contract reads Shane McMahon. From what I hear, his son, Shane, mm -hmm. wanted to buy the UFC. Vince had the opportunity to buy it, and Vince said, yeah, no, we're not going to buy it. Vince could have bought this thing and just put it on the shelf, or Vince could have right. bought it and let his son... You know, the universe works in crazy ways. Yeah. We were meant to buy this. Who knows how much different the UFC would have looked underneath him, but man, I can only imagine the UFC would be a totally different place if that was what went down. Number 23, Chemo's Cross. So this is pretty much a perfect time to the last fact because, well, as it turns out, even in the early days of the old UFC, they were desperate not to have their products confused with the WWE. We were in the, this is, we were still trying to convince anyone that these were real fights. And I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure nothing looks like it has anything going on that like even leans towards pro wrestling. They did everything they could to let you know that these fights were, well real. And so one thing that was banned was the idea of theatrical entrances, anything to separate themselves from the idea of scripted fights. So then how did we end up with this? Well, being keenly aware of this rule, Kimo had a crazy idea. Ship the cross pieces to the venue and pawn off the rather large cargo as training equipment. So Joe Sarn shows up with Kimo in Charlotte and my, my, my assistant, Kathy Kidd, says, they've got some big thing wrapped up. It looks like it might be, a, it might be like, a, like a stair climber, all wrapped up in paper with duct tape. Bob Myrowood, sitting that night next in the octagon, said to me, what's that? So when he made that walk to the cage for the first time, everyone inevitably made the comparisons the UFC were trying to avoid all along. I certainly had no idea that he was going to do it. I think he's kind of awesome now, but then not so much. <laughs> Number 22, Pride Fakes Commentary. So the beloved Japanese organization that has only grown more legendary since its collapse in 2007 pretty much started out as just that a Japanese organization. Back in 1997, when the first event happened, there was no English commentary at events, and that continued on until 1999 when they hired Boss Rutten and Steven Quadros. So what did they do for all those old events that didn't have commentary? Well, <laughs> I guess just pretend to be watching it live and record that? Yes, that's really what happened, and most humorously, this led to Steven Quadro spoiling a fight while he was literally in the middle of calling it, and Boss getting stunlocked by the whole thing. Amir, when I was working as editor for Kickboxing Ring Report, used to was calling me from Japan, telling me, hey, I took a fight with Gary Goodrich. I said, oh my god. Then Amir called me after the fight was over, and he uh, told me that he had lost the fight. 
Okay, they have to cut it out. You're right here, man. By the way, it's still on Fight Pass literally right now. Number 21, the Lineal Double Champ. For those not familiar with the concept, a Lineal Champ is pretty much following the first champ all the way to the present day regardless if they left an organization or vacated their belt. The idea is they never lost, so technically they're still the champ whether or not they are officially that. You know, you have to beat the man to be the man kind of thing. So for the sake of the UFC's heavyweight title, it was initially won by Mark Coleman. He then lost to Murray Smith, Smith lost to Randy Couture, who then left the UFC due to a contract dispute and shockingly lost it in Japan to Ensign Inouye, and long story short, that went through an insane journey all the way back to the UFC, which was then captured by Francis Ngannou. So he was not just the UFC champ, but also the lineal heavyweight champ. And so how that concept applies to him leaving the UFC and vacating that belt, well, he's still the lineal champ. So him fighting Fury, who is, by the way, the boxing lineal champ, and arguably winning in the hearts and minds of fans all over the world, and by the way, this includes one judge officially, means you could make the argument that he is now a two-sport lineal heavyweight champ. Whether or not you buy that argument or you go along with it, it's still crazy that this was his first fight ever. Tell me that doesn't sound fake. I mean, can you imagine if Rocky immediately won a title in the first Rocky movie? People would be like, this is stupid. Like a bum. Number 20, Iceman Accountants, LLC. So, you know, probably the biggest star for the UFC in its first 10 years under Zufa's umbrella, right? Liddell was the first truly transcendent star of the tough boom and beyond, and he fit the bill pretty much perfectly in terms of the stereotype. He had a mohawk, tattoos on the side of his head, he smiled on the way to the cage before whooping somebody's ass. You know, that guy. And for a long time, I think people associated this sport with the uneducated. Mixed martial art is for beer, beer drinkers. Boxing is for everybody. This is a, I mean, you can't take, you can't take my shoes off and take my shirt off and just throw me in a cage. You do that with animals. You don't, you can't do that with, with you know, with, you don't do that with humans. A lot of what it is, is people have bought into the stereotype. We're going to show you the bloodiest, goriest right. fighting sport mm -hmm. ever. Look at it. those people that think that it is. Yeah, and, and really, it's... it's uh... Well, what if I told those people that think that way? The guy went to one of the top accounting schools in the country at Cal Poly. The guy graduated from Cal Poly with honors with an accounting degree. What? You know what I mean? It just makes no sense. I had to pick a major when I was a freshman. I picked accounting as an extra job. So you were job. a numbers guy. Yeah, yeah. My, my mom used to do bookkeeping as, a, as an extra job to, to make, make more money. And, uh, and I used to help her out when we were kids. And I would have done well doing that, but I just think this was a lot more fun. Number 19, no decisions. Longtime fans of the sport will likely recognize the name of Shannon Rich. He's pretty much fought everyone despite never making it to the UFC. He's fought Sakuraba, Dan Severn a couple times, a young version of Jake Shields and even Diego Sanchez. He fought in Pride, WEC, King of the Cage, Pancrase, but definitely what makes him most memorable is his sheer amount of fights. 151. Honestly, it's not a great tally with 58 wins and 89 losses spanning all the way from 1998 to 2020, but perhaps the most unbelievable thing about all those fights is, well, not a single one of those fights has ever went the distance. And beyond that, he's only made it to the second round a total of eight 
times, and not a single one of them to the third round. Are you kidding me out of 151 fights? Now, I gotta be honest, fight fixing is certainly one of the things he's often accused of, and yeah, it's kind of hard for me to argue with that. Uh, we've all been in the locker room as Shannon Rich walks in and says, who wants the night off? All right, Shannon, I guess I'll take you. <laughs> You know, <laughs> there's some questionable fights. I'll put it that way. But that just makes this fact even crazier. Number 18, Tito versus Dana. This one is pretty infamous in the MMA community, but the ridiculousness of it doesn't make it any less unbelievable. It's just that weird. So yeah, even though Dana used to manage Tito before he convinced the Fertitas to buy the UFC, that relationship rapidly changed once the two began negotiating contracts against one another. I'm inclined to believe that both are probably a little right here in terms of what they accuse each other of, but either way, it got so heated that they agreed to box each other in a real fight. It went as far as Spike creating a documentary that led up to the fight and detailed Dana's training when at the 11th hour, Tito suddenly backed out of the fight. So the president of the UFC wanted to box one of his top actual fighters, and the fighter was the one that pulled out. FYI, you want to watch some deep dives on this, we've done a great video of this with Rob Palin. I'll link it down below if you guys want to check out the full story on that one. That was part of the stipulation when he came back that he wanted to box me. And then Tito ended up bailing and pulling out of the thing after I trained for the thing. So you're disappointed when you backed up. Yeah, I was really upset. He's still calling I showed up and weighed in. Yes, we were supposed to box. Um, and me and Dana, we agreed upon 50-50. But when it came down to it and, there, and it was going to get done, he said, we can't do that anymore. I can't give you anything. I said, well, there's no contract. You can't give anything. I'm not going to do it. Number 17, UFC event names. It still kind of blows my mind that at this point, by nearly UFC 300, we still haven't figured out a way to catalog events in a more interesting way. I mean, if you think about it, this is the most boring way to do it on paper. Can't wait for UFC 997842. Looking forward to that one. Quick side fact, there have been way more events than that in terms of the pay-per-view chronology, including some of the old events like Ultimate Ultimate 1996 or UFC Brazil from back in the day, which are officially numbered as 11.5 or 17.5 with a bunch others. And another example of that is probably the most infamous one when the UFC suddenly got a one-fight TV deal between an already planned UFC 37 and 38, so they just called this 37.5. Hi again everybody and welcome to what we're calling UFC 37 and a half from the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Okay, well, first off, we'll tell you, we're, we're, we're taping this actually uh, right after the Chuck Liddell Vitor Belfort fight. Wow. Wow. That's a perfect description. Wow. Fantastic fight. But what's really funny is when they tried their damnedest to get away from the numbers, especially in the early years trying to minimize the number or even get rid of it entirely in favor of more catchy names, which led to ridiculous results including UFC Knockout, where there were no knockouts on the entire card, or UFC First Defense with the backstage KO by Randleman. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Number 16, too small. Even though we are approaching nearly 10 years since Conor McGregor won his first interim UFC title in 2015 over Chad Mendes, he's still pretty undeniably the UFC's biggest star at this stage. And it's also pretty crazy to think the title he won in MSG in 2016 at lightweight was literally not even a title for the company at one point. Back when the weight class was first launched just after Zufa bought it in January 2001, 
They were very much seen as too small by many fans as it was a new class to be featured in the Octagon by then. All seemed to be going alright though with Jens Pulver as its first champ, but when BJ Penn came along because he was already a world jiu-jitsu champ in such a short amount of time that got him the name The Prodigy, and because of all that hype that came along with that, the UFC was willing to pay him more than their actual champion at the time in Jens Pulver, who won. So this led to a contract dispute and Jens decided to leave because, yeah, he was kind of upset about this. And they didn't think it was going to go anywhere. They didn't expect, it was very low pay because they didn't expect this this weight class was going anywhere. I'm looking at the contract and every time, Uno, Hallman, Penn, he's making less than they're making. And I kept going back to him, to Dana and saying, Dana, you know, this is back when Dana and I got along. He goes, if we, if, just tell him to keep winning and, and when he does, We'll take care of him. We love Jets. Well, yeah, they love BJ. After he left, the UFC tried to crown a champ with a mini tournament, but when BJ and Kel Uno fought, well, it ended in a draw. So basically from here, the UFC said, fuck it. Everyone keeps telling us this weight class is too small. We're losing a ton of cash here. So let's just get rid of the damn thing. This meant the UFC lightweight belt was literally gone for several years. So from February 2003, when this happened, all the way to October 2006, there were no lightweight title fights. Furthermore, there were literally no fights at all in the weight class from UFC 49 to UFC 58, only a couple months shy of two years crazy stuff. Number 15, the Yakuza. So you want to talk about something infamous, this one is going to be hard to top. The largest MMA organization in the world by 2007 suddenly met a brick wall when it was discovered that they were backed by several factions of the Japanese mob or the Yakuza and suddenly became an allergy to all TV networks, which pretty much instantly sunk them, causing the UFC to swoop in and take what remained of their roster and video library. The most infamous story is when Fedor took a one-fight deal to compete with a rival promotion in Japan called Anoki Bumbaye in 2003. And what's alleged here is that Pride was furious enough about this to turn up with their Yakuza muscle and threatened Anoki Bumbaye officials and Fedor's manager after locking them in a room at gunpoint. One of the guys pulled out his gun put on the table and we continued the talk and when I continued to push back he picked the gun up and aimed it to my head and said you know what's going to happen if you don't saw it. Fearing for his life, Miro reluctantly signed Fyodor over to Pride. This story broke a little later in 2006 along with a ton of other accusations and the company met its end soon after. Number 14, Wild Animals. I think even to this day, the idea of cage fighting is pretty extreme for a lot of people. And yeah, it kind of makes sense when you pull yourself out of it a little bit. So I put together a business plan, brought in movie director John Millions, who did Conan the Barbarian, Ron Schwarzenegger's career, and a whole bunch of other great stuff in Hollywood. And I came up with, along with John, the concept of the octagon. I didn't want a boxing ring where the guys could not only slip through the ropes and get away if they get it beat up, but also the corner could put the guy in a bad spot. 
But I think at the end of the day, that octagon and the name the octagon really made it sound a little bit foreboding, dangerous even. But the initial plans that were proposed got a lot crazier. In addition to an electric fence, which is potentially as lethal as it sounds, but there was also the extreme idea of putting an alligator moat around the cage. Uh, we discussed the different options for the octagon. We thought of a moat with alligators around, you know, or sharks. We thought of all kinds of an electric fence. They thought all kind of different styles of the pit with alligators on the board. Thankfully, cooler heads would prevail and they realized the cage was pretty foreboding enough and far less unethical. Number 13, an undefeated cab driver. Back in the early UFC's Art Davey, and probably one of his best moves for early promotion was just to let fighters claim whatever the hell they wanted on their records. Andy has a record of 86-0 in bare-knuckle challenge matches, with all 86 by knockout. It would get thrown right back in their face anyway if they lost when their lies inevitably met someone more legitimate. So you saw all kinds of ridiculous records, but none more glaring than Thomas Ramirez. At age 41 and weighing literally 410 pounds, or at least that's how he was billed, he was perfect for the David versus Goliath branded tournament that they were trying to push for UFC 8 in Puerto Rico. As a striker from the obscure art of Pacquachan, with a conveniently even record of 200 0, well, he was about to meet reality. And Yikes. I found a great interview online of Big John McCarthy talking about this. Thomas Ramirez. And this guy was a taxi cab driver. He had no business being in there because Don Fry was a true wrestler and, you know, had competed in Golden Gloves boxing and stuff and yeah. had been training with, you know, Dan Severn. So had no business being there at all. And you look and go, Oh, this is horrible. This guy was a taxi cab driver. MMA's history is so crazy. Number 12, Star Wars MMA. This definitely sounds like two things that don't really belong in the same sentence together. I wouldn't go that far. But as odd as it might seem, the famed George Lucas, George Lopez, who of course created Star Wars, well, he had a daughter who fought in MMA. I was never good at sports. I, I, I danced um, and I was really good at that and I knew I was good at that, but I... You know, I've never felt athletic. I hated P.E. You know, I would never expected Amanda to become a fighter because she's so sweet and lovely and, you know, quiet. I said, well, okay, you know, you do what you love. In fact, there's a great documentary by Bobby Rozick that he's made about this very subject. And to her credit, Amanda did fairly well. This was a little before things took off with Rousey in the UFC, and there was only three months between her last fight and Rousey versus Carmouche to kick things off worldwide. But yeah, she'd actually won a title in Japan with Deep. She essentially came across some injuries and decided to settle down with kids. So that was the end of that. Number 11, Scott Coker, the actor? The actor? Yes, the man most known for running Strike Force and Bellator used to have an acting career. Have you got the stuff yet? It's him. You don't just shoot. Beyond that, he was also a stuntman and crazy enough in films like Surf Ninja. It's the story of these kids who get booted from their country by this evil dude. 
Not gonna call it the greatest martial arts movie ever, but this was definitely one that me and my brothers got a kick out of as kids. While he was already known for his work in kickboxing at this point with the ISKA and his own martial arts training, most of us wouldn't get any kind of exposure to him until the mid-2000s when Strike Force made it big time as a promotion in the MMA world. So yeah, we're talking several decades here before anybody knew him in the MMA world. Number 10, moving cards overnight. So we've already talked about one of these with UFC 232 and John Jones. On, on this issue here, he's been cleared by USADA. He's been cleared by, you know, the expert. Obviously with the holidays and the way that this all went down, he couldn't be cleared right now. So we moved the fight to LA. But UFC 12 may be the worst and best day simultaneously for the sport in North America. While on the downright awful side, the UFC would be banned in New York on this day from February 7th, 1997 due to mounting political pressure and pretty much be the true de facto start of the MMA dark ages, especially in New York lasting all the way until 2016. Well, this event was also amazing in a lot of ways. Because of the shakeup, Joe Rogan got a last minute call to fill in the gaps with backstage interviews. I got a call from my manager. He's like, this is ridiculous. This doesn't pay much money. You got to fly to Dothan, Alabama. I'm like, dude, I'm in. The UFC heavyweight champion in Mark Coleman was still crowned. And we saw the debut of Vitor Belfort. The event itself turned out to be amazing. But of course, because of that ban, it almost didn't happen at all. The local government in New York essentially put up so many walls last minute for the UFC with rules that banned the ground game, forced the wearing of protective shin guards and headgear while also strangely demanding a custom cut cage to their exact specifications. This was really a seminal moment that we had now been, you know, effectively banned in New York state. That ban led to cable companies taking us off. And now we had our audience cut by two thirds. So overnight, they decided to fly to Alabama. The airport was closing. They told us that the plane was overweight. And so we just physically took luggage out of the plane, out of the, out of the hold and threw it onto the tarmac. And the roughest era of the sport began. Number nine, that celebrity fight. Speaking of Joe Rogan, with what we've seen of him in jiu-jitsu... That's right, you're allowed to choke. You're yeah. allowed to choke in this well, sport. And the ability to kick like he does, and the shape he stayed in when he was young, many people have wondered why he never stepped in the cage himself. One infamous instance was about to occur when he actually got booked against Wesley Snipes. Well, I think he just needed money. Uh, you know, um, he was in a bad situation where he owed taxes, and the, the government, they put him in jail. You know, he got put in jail for tax evasion, and uh, they were trying to figure out a way to make money. And they came to this guy, Camel McLaren, who was uh, one of the original producers of the UFC. The UFC was on board. Wow. I, lawyers involved. I trained for it for like six months. I was training twice a day, every day. I was kickboxing, and then after I did that, I would go to jiu-jitsu at night. How close did it get before they Pretty pulled it? Pretty fucking close. Yeah. Pretty close. Like, we were trying to figure out when it would happen. Like, would it be December? Or would it be November? Like, what it was. It got down to, I forget what the final fucking straw that broke the camel's back was when he backed out. But uh, I gave him everything he asked for. Every time they tried to change things, I said, okay. Yeah. I said, I'm going to strangle him. This fight has become more and more well-known over the years, but it still doesn't make it any less unbelievable that it almost happened. Crazy. Number eight, UFC. 
So yeah, this one is really dumb, but I can't believe it actually happened because it's so weird and odd. Basically, John Oliver was really unhappy with Dane and the UFC putting on events and it being Fight Island that was designated pretty much as the only place to put on fights during the early stages of the pandemic. It led to John Oliver making this joke. The UFC is apparently building a facility on a private island that they're calling Fight Island. Is it the perfect name? Yes, because it's the first thought an idiot would have if they wanted to name a private island where fights happen. And he didn't even go with the obvious name for an island where you stage UFC fights, which is simply UFC. Look at me, Dana. Why didn't you just call it UFC? It's perfect. I mean, it was just kind of a silly pun, and in an admitted stroke of genius, Dana decided to make good use of the controversy, taking John Oliver up on his offer. I'm actually a John Oliver fan, so I went out and I, and I, and I, uh, I trademarked, he said, you should have just called it UFC. Right. So I trademarked <laughs> UFC. These are gonna go up for sale on, on the UFC website, all proceeds to these t-shirts will actually go to, I, I did some research and John Oliver, uh, one of his big charities is the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Well played, Dana, well played. Number seven, catch wrestling. Of all the mind blowing things I've been surprised by in running this channel is what Tommy Toehold uncovered in his fantastic breakdown of the Fix Fights era in Japan that was running rampant in the 90s. Seriously, watch it as soon as you can if this piques your interest in any way. Basically, MMA and pro wrestling have the exact same roots as what it comes down to. Tracing back to Wales in 1877, a man by the name of John Graham Chambers created the basics for what we now know as catch wrestling. This lent on submissions as well as wrestling techniques to create this new style. And so two branches quickly developed out of this. Legit contests between the baddest fighters on the planet and those that saw the opportunity to make money at carnivals initially. This is what we basically now know as pro wrestling. And as the years went on, these two forms spread, most notably with Mitsuyo Maeda on the catch wrestling circuit, who wanted to bring his skills in judo and other arts and bring that into the catch wrestling scene. So that led him to Brazil and fostering the beginnings of Brazilian jiu-jitsu alongside the Gracies. In Japan, they took that form of catch wrestling and blended it with pro wrestling. So that's how we ended up with crazy fights like Ali versus Anoki and all the major players who ran Pancrae, Shudo, and Rings. And so when you think about it, that's what literally gave us Shamrock versus Gracie by 1993 at UFC 1. And also the Rock and Stone Cold somehow. To be honest, you guys, I am not doing this justice at all. Seriously watch Tommy Toehold's video right after this. Legit one of my favorite videos we have ever done. Number six, Dean Thomas goes to jail. Are you pulling my dick, bro? Yeah, pretty much exactly what the title says, but the reason is beyond stupid. Back in 2007, MMA was literally illegal in the state of Florida. No amateur fights, no pro fights, you're going to jail if you try to do it. Well, turns out Dean Thomas got caught for doing this at his gym. According to one of the arresting officers, this is what happened. Quote, once unseen, I observed a large cage octagon ring with two men inside fighting. There was a third male in the octagon acting as a referee, and around the octagon there were several people, approximately 150 men, women, and minors. They were sitting and standing on makeshift stands, chairs facing the octagon, cheering while watching the two men fight. Both fighters wore gloves, but did not have on any protective gear. At the front door of the location, there was a table with a small sign stating $10 per 
per person. Also located on the table was a roll of raffle tickets." End quote. So this sounds pretty bad, right? Sounds like they're putting on an illegal promotion. Well, think about it a little more. Here's what the state officially ended up saying in their ruling. Quote, the state attorney's office decided not to file formal charges against Thomas, largely because of an exception to the, quote, prohibited competitions, unquote, law that allows such competitions for training. He said if the fighter or participants in the match were students at Thomas's school and the purpose of the school is to teach mixed martial arts, then they meet the exception to the law, quote unquote. So yeah, this is bafflingly dumb. The officers infiltrated a fundraising, sparring type kind of scenario at a gym and tried to arrest Dean Thomas for it. He could have even gotten five years for this. Again, you can't make this stuff up, unreal. Number five, Muhammad Ali. If the world's greatest fighter meets the world's greatest martial art, Krasala. <laughs> and you should see everything that's going to be packed. They're going to be lined up. $100, $200, $300. I'm going to lay around the road and pop him on his nose. And, and if he should ever take me down, I'll grab the rope. <laughs> when you talk about a moment that changed the course of history, look no further than this incredibly strange mixed rules fight. As I mentioned a bit ago, the catch wrestling history pretty much led to MMA in Japan with the first organization in Shudo in 1985 being formed. There were many things that led to this, but one event perhaps single-handedly inspired MMA's formation above all, and that was Muhammad Ali facing off with Antonio Inoki, pretty much the biggest pro wrestler ever out of Japan. It was just supposed to be a standard scripted pro wrestling match at first, but as the event got closer and egos took over, the rules rapidly shifted more and more towards a real fight, which it actually became. Albeit with the worst rule set ever, Anoki couldn't kick Ali while standing up, but could from the ground, which led to him pretty much just doing that the entire fight. And to be fair, this pretty much meant he messed up Ali's legs bad enough in their matchup, and him being on the ground meant that Ali couldn't really retaliate with punches back. There's lots of swelling on that left knee there. While in America this fight was a massive dud because of, yeah, it was a weird fight, Anoki's credibility and fame shot through the roof because no matter how weird it was, how much he was able to bruise up the most famous fighter on the planet was a big deal to everyone in Japan. So it was this oddity of all things that inspired those future generations to train under him in the catch wrestling style and begin putting on real fights of their own before the UFC even began. Number 4. The Bag Carrier there are so many weird and crazy facts about Dana's life, being a boxer-sizing instructor who is extorted out of Boston by famed mobster Whitey Bulger. Our classes became huge all throughout Boston. And one day I'm actually in there teaching a class and these guys literally walk right into the middle of the class and they basically told me, we want the money. And I said, I don't have the money. It was $2,500, which was like 25,000 to me in those days. So I literally that day, I, I bought a plane ticket and came back to Vegas. Having some billionaire buddies that were somehow prepared to throw $44 million into the UFC before it ever became profitable. But in between all that and the UFC, he had another job. Dana White, I like Dana White, I don't have anything against him, but I can remember Dana White used to hang around me and Jeff Mayweather yes. and carry my bags. Yes. Dana White, you know I remember used to carry my bags. And he didn't just carry Mayweather's bags for no reason. You might think that this was in connection to a short stint as a bellhop, but no, this was a totally different thing altogether. Together. 
he had his own boxing apparel brand. You had the little bullen, the bullen, bullen visor patch I wore on my trunks for you, Dana. So bullen visor means a German bulldog, and Dana White literally sponsored Mayweather's first pro fight. It's right there on the jacket. Making his professional debut, pretty boy Floyd Mayweather. What a crazy route these two ended up taking. Number three, Titans of Industry. This one is super recent, but someone please tell me how this was presented as a real thing. Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk were making headlines all around the world for, of all things, a cage fight. Not a boxing fight, but an MMA fight, and at one point, even Dana White was trying to get in on all the action and was doing everything he could to put those two inside of his octagon. Well, just to, just to give some clarification, so what he said is, Mark Zuckerberg responded with, send me location. Both guys are absolutely dead serious about this. This one just makes me throw my hands up in the air because how is this even real life? How is this the discussion the president of the UFC was entertaining and these guys were too? I mean, honestly, it seems like a bit more of a troll for both of them, but you couldn't have told that to Dana White at the time if you tried. <laughs> um, well, I don't think that fight's going to happen. It's very real. Again, what the fuck is real life at this point? Number two, it still doesn't pay the bills. It's kind of crazy how we talked about the dark ages of the MMA in North America that came to a draw with the tough boom in 2005. And here we are now about 20 years later, and to a certain extent, it doesn't feel much different for a lot of fighters in their pocketbooks. Our own Tommy Toho did a fantastic breakdown of what fighters realistically are making at this stage. And who could forget Cheyenne Blismas, who was co-headlining her own event on national television with ESPN, telling us how broke she was in her UFC career. Animals and my husband, we have one vehicle. We packed up our car with one suitcase. We came here, we didn't have a house, we had nothing. I just found out two seconds ago, I got performance of the night, so. I think sometimes, because we talk to fighters every week, we, we sometimes forget how much a difference that 50 grand can make to your life. How, how, what impact is that gonna have on you? I am negative in my account right now, so it's gonna make a big difference. And my whole paycheck actually is I have to pay back $15,000 for a loan I got. You know, I made 10 and 10 for my win and my win and show, so that 20,000 was just gone. Just to get that bonus. I've been so broke my whole life because of this sport, but it's so worth it to me because I love this sport. Meanwhile, other athletes and other sports are making so much more for merely being bench warmers in the NFL. Of course, this isn't like the NFL to make 750K, but I don't know, at least something remotely better than that. Number one, how we got here. Above all of this, still the craziest thing to me is that this sport was essentially on its deathbed in America and was literally going bankrupt for the early UFC. It was illegal in most states, it wasn't allowed on pay-per-view, and it all turned out, love him or hate him, because Dana White was able to convince his billionaire buddies he knew from high school into investing into this whole thing. After four years of doing nothing but burning cash, they made a last-ditch effort, right around $44 million in debt of funding their own reality show that actually worked, blew up the sport, and turned it all around. So that $2 million they purchased the UFC for, which it definitely wasn't worth $2 million with how much cash they had to burn to get this thing back off the ground. But anyhow, that $2 million somehow became $4 billion by 2016, and as of the latest TKO evaluation, is now over $12 billion. 
That story is just fucking insane, but it's absolutely true, and here we are as a result of it. If the next 30 years look anything like this, we're in for a crazy next 30 years. But anyhow, that's it for me, guys. I've talked enough here. Tell me what you guys think should have been on this list. I could have put so much more. It was hard to stop at 30, to be honest. These are just the ones that I really enjoy talking about and stood out to me. Massive credit to our Hall of Famers and champions who make content like this possible. And of course, you all for watching. You guys are awesome. Have a great day, and I'll catch you guys on the next video. Peace.